Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Elna Baker. She sort of made this face and then she goes, you look different. And I was like, I don't have a hymen. <laughs> like She knows, she knows. That and more. But before that, I just want to remind everyone that if you don't like hearing these ads at the beginning of a show or in the middle of the show or at the end of the show, you can get ad-free versions of Risk episodes the same day that we release them in the free feed. If you sign up for Patreon, for our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk, and you give $10 or more per month, and you will have access to those ad-free episodes, as well as a lot of bonus content. We put extra stories up there, videos, photos, interesting little behind-the-scenes stuff. So yeah, it's well worth helping to keep Risk running by becoming a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. And paging all book lovers, today's show is supported by Book of the Month. Book of the Month is a rapidly growing service with a simple goal to make sure you love what you read. You browse the five best books of the month and discover titles you wouldn't have found on your own. With exclusive pricing starting at just $10, you can get your favorites shipped to your doorstep for less. Book of the Month bound to delight and get your first book for $10 at bookofthemonth.com slash risk. Finally, don't forget, Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now you too can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is krungbin behind me now i'll tell you i wish every band had a video on youtube in which they explain to you how their name is pronounced so thank you to krungbin for that we are calling this week's episode full disclosure Three stories about uh, stuff that just had to come out. 
So, these three storytellers are now coming out to us about coming out to other people in their lives. We're going to start with a story that was shared, gosh, (laughs) I guess it was a couple years ago now, at the Cleveland Public Library. Yeah, November of 2015, it says here. This is Elna Baker, who is one of our all-time favorites. I believe Elna originally worked on this story with the folks over at The Moth, but that this particular version includes stuff that's not in that version. Now, after Elna, we're going to hear a radio-style story. It's a very special treat. This is from a fella named Elliot Ridley, who was a Risk fan, who wrote in to us. He's in Canada. He said, hey, I've never done this sort of thing before. Young guy, like very, you know, new to the whole realm of storytelling. But he said, I really feel like I want to share about this experience. There's some trauma. There's some sexual trauma in that story, just to give everyone a heads up about that. But before that, we're going to hear from Elna Baker at the Risk Live show at the Cleveland Public Library of the story we call... To Russia with love. Hi. So I'm 28 years old, and I'm flying to Siberia to tell my parents that I recently lost my virginity. Yay! (laughs) Most children would not feel compelled to do this. Most parents actually don't want you to do that. But my family's different. We are Mormon, and we're very close. For Mormons, sex before marriage is considered the second most serious sin next to murder. Yeah, murder, like a terrible thing. Sex, as it turns out, like pretty, pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> like, at least compared to murder. <laughs> and so in the year that I had taken a break from being a practicing Mormon and eventually ventured into having sex, I was racked with this guilt of what's going to happen if my parents find this out. And I think it mattered so much because I really love my parents. Like, my dad is my best friend. He's so funny. He used to wake us up in the morning, he would like blast Bob Marley and come in like doing a little dance. (laughs) And my mom, I have all these memories of, she would play the piano and all five of us kids, we would twirl in circles until we got so dizzy we would fall on the floor. And like Saturday mornings, the goal was to be the first kid awake because we would all pile into their bed, but if you were the first, you got the spot in between mom and dad. And we would all just sit in bed as a family and like joke. And as adults, we would all come home and if we were all there, we'd all do the same thing, all you know, seven of us adults would pile on my parents' bed and just joke and laugh for like two or three hours. I told this to a friend once and he was like, that is the scariest thing I've... If that happened with my family, that is terrifying. But that is my family. And yet, like, that harmony exists when everyone is the same. And now I was doing something different from them. The real big step that I took was having sex. And I was so worried, like, what's going to happen when they find out? Are they going to disown me? That I finally thought, the only way to know is just fly there, tell them face to face. But also, (laughs) I'd written an article for Glamour magazine about losing my virginity. (laughs) (laughs) So whether I told them or not, in about two months, they were going to find out. And this article, it was meant to be like this heartfelt piece where it's 
Like, what is it like to lose your virginity as a, you know, 28-year-old adult? Uh, but then Glamour got their hands on it. You, you can Google it. It's called, guess what? I'm not a virgin anymore. <laughs> Complete with a photo of me dangling a cherry over my mouth. Which, to be fair, I did pose for that photo. <laughs> And my favorite part is that under the picture, it's like, the byline is like, Elna Baker, author and former virgin. <laughs> that, that's most everybody's byline. Um, so, and to make matters worse, this article was slated to come out the same week as my younger sister's wedding in the Mormon temple. And the last thing I wanted to do was, like, upstage the wedding. Like, the entire extended family would be there, and they'd be like, Julia's getting married! Elna's going to hell! (laughs) So I thought, all right, two months to go, I'm going to fly to Siberia and just tell them face-to-face. And my parents actually live in Siberia. (laughs) That's not a joke. My dad runs a titanium factory there, because he's an evil villain. (laughs) It had been one of my dreams to go and visit and just run down the halls of the factory like, and knock things over and be like, it's daddy's factory. <laughs> and so it takes three days to get to Siberia, right? Like you have to fly and fly and fly. So I had like plenty of time to prepare this speech, right? The thing is, I thought like deep down, I was like, I think they won't disown me. Like I think they love me, but I knew what was most likely going to happen was that I was going to disappoint them beyond heartbreak. And that's because Mormons believe a very, very specific thing, uh, which is that families can be together forever. So after you die, you'll be with your loved ones. And it's like a very comforting thought. Like, when my grandmother died, I believed, it's okay, I'm going to see her again. And the way that you see each other again is that you get to be a family forever if uh, you're married in the temple and if you keep God's commandments. And I had just broken God's second most serious commandment. So essentially, I was flying there to tell them uh, that we wouldn't be together in the afterlife and that we only had a little bit more time. I knew this was going to break their hearts. So my goal was to tell them right when I got there, and then we would have like two weeks together to repair our relationship. So... I step off the plane, and they're there waiting for me at the airport, and the first thing my mother says when she sees me, she sort of made this face, and then she goes, you look different. And I was like, I don't have a hymen. (laughs) Like, she knows, she knows. And I was like, I can't tell her now. So I didn't tell them. And then the next day, uh, we went on this little hike, and we went to the top of this little mountain, and there was a view, and it was just this beautiful, beautiful scenic moment, and I was with both my parents, and I thought, all right, I have to tell them. And just as I was about to, my mother turned to us and said, look at the pure, pure, pure white snow. (laughs) No, not, no, no, not now. (laughs) So I didn't tell them. And I spent just two weeks on vacation with my parents. And it was the most fun I have ever had with them. Because I like, felt like it was the last time I would ever... Like, the way you can appreciate something that you've always had, but the idea that you may never have it again. Like, I loved every moment. Like, every time we laughed. Like, I just thought, like, oh, I may never have this again. And then it was the last day of the trip. <laughs> 
And I still hadn't told them anything. And my dad got up early to go to work because he's an evil villain. And um, <laughs> my mom made me breakfast and I thought, Ugh, you know what? I'll just tell mom. She can tell dad. That's it. I'll do this. So we sit down for breakfast and she'd made eggs and I was cutting into the eggs and I clear my throat and I start to begin to tell her and as I'm doing it I cut into the eggs and the yolk splashes up and hit me right in the eye and my hand goes to my eye I'm like oh my god my mother drops her silverware and looks at me and says do not take the Lord's name in vain in front of me do you know how much that hurts me and I was like oh I, I never can tell them no I mean if that hurts her if saying God out loud, I've been saying God a lot lately out loud when I've been having sex. <laughs> and so I started crying and I pretended it was because of the egg, but it just made me so sad because I thought, like, is this what it means to be an adult? Because when you're Mormon, you live like a PG to PG-13 life. And so you can tell your parents everything you do because you're like, I went to the movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I play board games. Like, you can tell them. And there was no barrier between my life and the life my parents knew. And I realized, like, being an adult means I can't share who I am with them anymore. And then my dad came home from work and the airport is three hours from their house, so they had hired a driver to take us to the airport But instead of just me going, they wanted to spend more time with me, so they accompanied me there for three hours, and they were going to drive three hours back. So we get in the car, and as the door shuts, I think, okay, I flew all the way here. This is my last chance. I'm going to tell them. But then my dad started talking to the driver, and they like hit it off, and then they're making friends, and everyone's talking, and I'm like, great. Now I have to tell my parents and the driver. (laughs) And and the driver is really fascinated by the fact that they live in Russia. He asks them, he says to my dad, you know, if there's anything about this country that you would change, what would it be? And my father immediately says, "Uh, the alcoholism, it's ruining this country. And the driver's like, yeah, but how do you change that? My dad says, the answer is you never take the first sip. Uh, Because, you know, I know myself, I can't just have one brownie. I would want more. So if you never have the first sip of alcohol, um, then you never open yourself up to addiction and the moral decay in this country. And I'm sitting in the front seat. I'm like biting my tongue. But then I'm like, you know, you used to say that to us growing up. But like, you know, I drink now. And it's totally possible to drink in moderation. Well, I turn around, my parents' faces are white. And they're like, what? you drink? And I was like, yeah, you didn't, you didn't know that? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, I told you I was on a break from being Mormon. What did you think that that meant? They're like, we thought it meant you just didn't go to church on Sunday. And I was like, oh, God. I didn't say God. Um, Oh, geez. Like, we're not on the same page at all. And it was wrong of me to think that they would understand this break because... That's not a thing. Mormons aren't allowed to do that. But I had, uh, at 27, I was a practicing Mormon living in New York. I was really Mormon. Like, I believed it. I had a testimony. But there's all these things you have to believe to be Mormon. Like, gay people can't get married, or that there's the living prophet, or that Joseph Smith, like, found a book of plates in a mountain and trans... Like, it's a lot of stuff to take in. But I believed it. And yet, like, I just kept 
questioning it and questioning it. Things just kept not making sense. And every time I would question it, I would just be told, like, the reason this is hard is you're not being good enough. And so I would try to be more Mormon. Then I would question it again, and then I would recommit myself and just be more and more and more Mormon. And then at 27, I finally, like, it hit me. I was, like, sitting, I was writing, I was staying in this cabin, and every morning I would read my scriptures for an hour. I would choose one passage and write it on a note card and tape it on the wall. And I was writing one day, I was struggling with some of these thoughts, and I looked up, and (laughs) the entire wall on both sides was just covered in note cards of scriptures, as if I was trying to push myself in. Like, if I didn't see them all, I couldn't leave without staying Mormon. And I just thought, like, it shouldn't be this hard to believe a thing. And maybe I don't know what it's like to not be Mormon, And do I want to spend the rest of my life never knowing what it's like to not be Mormon? And so I'd seen this documentary on the Amish where they get that, like, rumspringa at 16. (laughs) Best idea ever. (laughs) Um, Where they get a year and they can do, like, anything they want without religious consequences. For the most part, they just do meth. But, like, it's a great idea. (laughs) Um, So I thought, I'm going to take a rumspringa from being Mormon for one year. And I'm going to try all these things I've never tried. And I'm sure it'll make me want to be Mormon. Like, I'm sure this idea is the best idea, and then I'll become way more Mormon. But I'll at least know what's on the other side. So I took this break. And it was so hard to do anything. It was just baby steps, baby steps. But eventually, I let these things into my life that I didn't know how strong they would be. Or, like, that you can't go back from change sometimes. And my life started to change, and... Now I had to try to share this life with my parents. Well, upon finding out that I drank, they gave me the silent treatment for the entire three hours to the airport. And then when we got there, as my dad hugged me goodbye, he was very dramatic. He hugged me goodbye. Just as the hug ended, he pulled me back in, and he whispered in my ear, he said, this break of yours, is it really worth it? And I thought about it, and like, in the whole time I'd been on this break... I had had one moment of clarity, but it wasn't like the kind of story that I could share with my dad. It had happened a few months earlier. Uh, When I first started drinking, I would only have one drink because I'd seen like infomercials for Girls Gone Wild and I was like, I don't know how many they've had, you know? Like like how many till I show my boobs? So I would just have one drink. Uh, But then I was at this holiday party and, you know, drinks were free and and I had all of the drinks. And there was this guy that I had liked for a long time, and it turned out he liked me too, and we started kissing, and then we were just making out at this party, and then it got to be very late, and he turned to me, and he was like, let's go somewhere. Let's check into the Chelsea Hotel, which is this famed artist hotel in New York. I was like, ah, like I hadn't had sex. I think I had gone to like second base, first boobs. Is that first or second? Anyway, I hadn't done anything. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? I'm on a break. And I was like, yes, let's go to the Chelsea Hotel. (laughs) So we took a cab, and I still remember the sounds that my heels made on the black and white checkered marble as we approached that front desk. And there was this woman, and her back was to us, and she had, like, frizzy red hair, and she was filing mail. And so I lean in and, like, "Uh, excuse me, Um, excuse me, is it too late to check in? 
And she turns around and she has like smeared red lipstick and a half lit cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And she's like, actually, most people check in right about now. (laughs) (laughs) And so we we went upstairs. um, And (laughs) it was like this other world, this other plane of New York I'd never passed into. We didn't have sex, but it was the first time I was ever naked with someone, which is, God, do that. It's beautiful. It's just people can be naked. Hey. Uh, and full disclosure, it was also, the first, he went down on me, which I did not reciprocate. It's just like, I, I thought like being Mormon, it was like, that's a sin. So he did that. And then I was like, you're welcome. Like, I gave you that. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Then we fell asleep, and probably about two hours later, I woke up that, like, (gasps) sitting straight up, and it was like the Mormon me woke up, and I woke up in a panic, and I was like, what did I just do? Like, there's a uh, naked, there's a naked guy next to me, and I made a sin. (laughs) I did a sin. And I just started panicking. And and when I grew up Mormon, the thing I loved most was this idea that God was light and truth and that sin was darkness. So as I was on this break, I felt like I was like willingly courting this darkness into my life. My big fear was that if I did that, my light, all the light in me was going to go away. And so in this moment of like the worst panic, I just remember looking out at the skyline and the city and this person and thinking like the room was full of light still and that I had my light. Like I could do this. I could be here. And my light did not belong to anyone else. And so that was my moment of clarity. And um, that is not a story you can tell your dad. So um, (laughs) when he asked me if it was worth it, I ended up just saying, I don't know. And I got on the airplane and the doors shut. And I remember thinking like, I flew all the way to Siberia to tell my parents I lost my virginity. And instead I told them I drink in moderation. (laughs) I ended up telling them a month before the article came out and my sister's wedding, I called them on the phone and I told them. I cried, I think the whole time. Actually, my gay best friend later told me this speech I gave is literally the same speech every gay man gives when they come out. (laughs) He's like, there's this thing I have to tell you. I feel like I've kept myself at a distance because I've been keeping this from you, and I want you to know who I really am. I'm not doing this to hurt you. I love you, but I'm 28 years old, and I recently had sex with a man. And their response was best case scenario. They told me that they were incredibly disappointed, that they never thought I would find happiness, but um, that I'm their daughter and that they will always love me. And then the next time I saw them was at my sister's wedding, which was in Salt Lake at the Salt Lake City Temple. So Mormons, you have to be a practicing, worthy Mormon to go into the temple. So I wasn't actually allowed to go to the wedding, but I was a bridesmaid. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like all the perks. Um, so instead, I had to be there for pictures. So I had to sit in the parking lot in the car in a bridesmaid's dress and then come out for pictures. 
And I remember sitting there and looking at the temple. I've actually never shared this memory, but I am... I remember looking at the temple, and they're like, you know what, Mormon, they look like the Disney castle, <laughs> all lit up, they're beautiful and glowing and white. They're supposed to be God's house on earth. Where we lived, there wasn't a temple, they don't have them in every state, and when we were kids, the first time we saw a temple, we drove to this other state, and there was a temple, and we were so, so excited, but we got there, and it was night, and it was closed. So we all said to my parents, we said, can we just go outside and run up to the temple and kiss it? So we all ran up to the temple, all five of us, and I still remember in a line, all of us just kissing the temple. In that moment, I just wanted to go to the temple and touch it and kiss it, not because I believed in the temple, but I wanted to kiss my family inside. And I knew that we were going to always be different now. And then I thought, like, what if Mormonism is true and I'm wrong, I'm doing the wrong thing here? Is this what the afterlife is going to feel like? Like my whole family is in this glowing, beautiful place together for eternity. And I'm in like a parking lot in a bridesmaid's dress forever. Um, And then I started thinking about my break. Just the whole notion. I think that there are some brave people in life who can just change their mind, make a decision, and do something different the very next day. But then there's people like me who make this convoluted idea or break because you secretly want to do something, but you have to trick yourself into doing it. And I had carved out a year of my life to slowly wriggle out, and the year was up, and I hadn't officially made up my mind. And the reason I hadn't was that there were these things on both sides, like my family and then my life, like that I wanted to hold on to so badly, but they just kept getting further and further and further apart. And eventually you have to let certain things go. And my family is the most important thing to me in my life. But eventually I had to try and live my life. And in the end, you just, you hope you made the right decision. Thank you. going down on summer and her spine is starting to move in waves her legs are shooting outwards and inwards and she's pulling my head into her body my tongue is moving fast in and out she's moaning there are these melodic beautiful orgasms that are entering from her mouth and bouncing around the room i look up and she's looking at me her warm kind hazel eyes are looking at mine for a brief moment and then she closes her eyes and then she comes a 
moment of such intense, incredible pleasure for her that I'm vicariously experiencing, and I can't believe that this is happening. She's the most beautiful, confident, funny, grounded, self-loving person that I've been with, and I still can't believe that this is happening. She grabs me and pulls me upwards, and we start making out. Her finger is moving up and down my chest, and I can feel it going towards my limp penis. And I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I'm not hard, I'm not hard. And then a deep sense of anxiety surfaces through my entire body, and that's when I hear the voice. You faggot. You fucking faggot. What the fuck's wrong with you? This is such a hot girl, she's hot as fuck. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You call yourself a man? You're a fucking faggot. She's not gonna love you. She's embarrassed by you. She thinks you're disgusting. You're revolting. You're a piece of shit. What the fuck is wrong with you? And that's when I lose myself. Nine months earlier, I tried to kill myself. I felt like society and all of my peers and everyone at my university were telling me that the only way that I could be a sexually attractive man was to be cold, emotionally repressed, and to be a total asshole. I could not live with myself if this was the person I needed to be. And I also felt that I was extremely ugly, and I felt unlovable, and there was this just intense feeling of self-hatred and intense rage that I usually would repress or distract myself from, but this night I couldn't feel like I could do that. It was 2 a.m., and I was at one of my good friend's cast parties, and I was blackout drunk, and I felt this intense, biting tension in my stomach, and my heart was beating really fast, and all I wanted was to kill myself, and all I could feel was just this incredibly vicious, sadistic, self-hating voice in my head. I wanted to get hit by a car on Brock Street, or I wanted to stab myself with a kitchen knife at home. Luckily, two of my best friends saved me. They walked me home. They made sure that I was safe, waited till I fall asleep. And that next day, I knew that I needed to make some drastic changes in my life. I started going to counseling that summer and me and my best friend Jim decided that we would save up and we'd try to go to Oshiega at the end of the summer. It was going to be this like amazing festival. We were going to do a bunch of drugs and then, like we were best friends, very flourishing relationship and we were both super, super excited for this event. We get to Oshiega. It's absolutely beautiful. It's in this park and so you've got like these beautiful trees. Everyone's just dressed in extremely like slutty summer attire and we're like on various substances that make our serotonin and our dopamine and all these other great neurotransmitters very high and just having a beautiful loving joyous experience i see one of my best friends from university alice walk by and so i called out hey alice how you doing and we uh, ran we hugged each other we caught up with our lives and then she introduced me to one of her childhood best friends summer
So when I first met Summer, I was just like extremely attracted to her. She had these sexy uh, hazel eyes and she had like soft brown hair and she was shorter than me. And she just was like extremely beautiful and had this really great energy about her. Like she just had this huge smile on her face and she kind of came and she like gave me this huge hug. And I was like, oh my God, I even know you. But this is like, wow, it's fucking awesome. So we started talking to each other and I couldn't believe that this was happening because before I could never talk to a woman that was this beautiful and this grounded and this like funny, like I constantly like hated myself and thought that I was unlovable and not a real man. And so there's like sadistic voices would creep into my head and they would just silence me and I would just, you know, be like very nervous. I'd be thrown into this very like adolescent, sweating, gross state. But in this moment, I just felt so confident and I feel like maybe it was just because of the therapy that I'd been going to or maybe it was because of this drastic suicide moment and I needed to change and there was an actual change in self and in personality that happened but I felt extremely calm and I was able to be present with her and in the moment and learning who she was and in telling her who I was and just kind of laughing and I still couldn't believe this was happening there definitely was still that voice in my head being like dude what the fuck this is crazy like wow don't Don't fuck this up! Don't fuck this up! Later on that evening, we ended up laying down and listening to, like Elise's ethereal voice was playing, and we were laying down on this hill, and I was just staring into her warm, beautiful eyes. This romantic connection was just growing within myself, and I felt like I was just really getting to know her. She just seemed to really, really love herself a lot and be in such a great place, and like, I hadn't honestly met many people like that before, and so she was quite inspiring to me as well as feeling really really connected to her so after we were talking she said uh, hey we should meet up with the other people she grabbed my hand and so when she held my hand that was the moment where I was just like holy fuck I am pretty positive she likes me like what the fuck this is absolutely amazing she's holding my hand oh my god this is so crazy holy shit I thought that this was it like oh she definitely likes me now like oh this is amazing she's holding my hand and so I was still in this place of trying to be calm trying to be confident but the anxiety was still there in the back of my head kind of creeping up later that night We went to Summer and Alice's childhood best friend's home and Summer, Alice, Jim and Summer's sister and I were all hanging out and drinking tea and just hanging out with each other. That's when the calmness broke. I could feel this sadistic voice in my head coming back. I could feel this intense tension in my stomach. It felt like my stomach was being ripped apart. My whole gastrointestinal system was fucked up. I felt like I needed to fart or shit. I had no idea what was going on. I, my whole body was really acting up. My heart was beating really fast. I was sweating a lot. So I grabbed Jim aside. I bring him to another room and I'm like, listen, man, I need to get the fuck out of here. This is terrible. This is horrible. Dude, she doesn't want to be with me. Dude, she doesn't want to fucking be with me, so let's go. Let's get out of here. And Jim says, hey man, listen, you gotta calm down. Let's just take some deep breaths. I can see right now that you're really anxious. I've been with you in these moments when you're anxious, and dude, you just gotta calm down. I've seen you two together. She likes you. You've got a good energy with her. She seems to like you. Everything's okay. Just calm down. Just breathe. Everything that Jim was saying was registering in my head. I knew that he was right. And so I went back into that room. 
Later that night, I was in Summer's bedroom, and I still don't know exactly what's happening, so I'm still fully clothed, and I get into bed with Summer, and uh, lights go off, and we're starting to go to sleep, and she starts rubbing herself against me. Um, She starts sucking my fingers, and so in this moment, I'm like, oh, okay, I think something actually is about to happen. And there's still that sense of anxiety, that sense of, okay, all right, but I know something is about to happen. And then she grabs my hand and she pulls me out of the bed and she brings me to another room. And I can still clearly remember the look in her eyes and this seductive, calm look that she gives me. And she's smiling at me and she pulls me in towards her and we start making out. Now we're in this other room and she closes the door and our tongues are diving into each other, our lips are pressing and pulling, our teeth are slowly biting at each other and we're really engaged in this moment of kissing. The last time I'd kissed someone had probably been a year or two years. And so to be in this moment which just felt absolutely incredible. Then she pulled me towards the bed and we started taking off our clothes and we're still making out. And I'm starting to realize that I'm not getting hard. I'm still completely flaccid, completely dead down there. So I'm starting to feel extremely anxious, extremely self-hating, and the fact that I can't get hard with this absolutely incredible woman that was in front of me. So I can sense this voice that starts coming into my head, and it's just like, you fucking faggot. What the fuck's wrong with you? This is such a hot girl. She's hot as fuck. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? So I try to, like push my sensations and my thoughts and my focus onto her body. And so I'm kind of moving down and I start going down on her. And so I'm focusing on her lips. I'm focusing on her warmth. I'm focusing on her wetness. But these voices keep coming back. So it's a fight between these voices in my head and her body. And uh, she's starting to orgasm. Her vocalizations like are starting to like echo and get louder and louder. And so I'm just desperately trying to focus on her. Then we kind of reach this climax. And then she kind of pulls me up and we start making out again. And then she looks at me and she says, Elliot, I think that you're really sexy. And I was attracted to you when I first saw you. And I really like felt like I wanted to sleep with you. I was just filled with this profound, incredible, immense sense of joy and validation. This was insane for me. I did not think that someone like as funny and as passionate and as like genuine and powerful as her could like someone like me. And just to hear that from her really made me feel so good. And I flew back to that state when I first met her, that state of being confident and being happy and just this incredible feeling of self-love. And I could feel the voice in my head it shifted and it was kind of like, this is incredible. You are amazing. Go fucking Elliot. Woo, 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 woo. And so it's this beautiful feeling. Her fingers start slowly moving up my chest and down and then it slowly starts moving towards my flaccid limp penis and when she touches it a bolt of electricity is pushed through my body I jump up I don't know what's happening my left body starts shaking almost like a violent seizure my left arm starts violently shaking then followed by my left leg then my right leg starts shaking, my right arm starts shaking, it's completely violent, my heart is beating a mile a minute, I can feel a constriction in my chest, the stomach pains that I had before came back but they're incredibly worse, and I'm sweating, and that's when I hear the voice, you fucking faggot, you fucking faggot, you faggot, you fuck up, and that's when I lose myself.
I go back when I was 13 years old. I'm 13 years old, and I'm at summer camp. And we went on this camping trip out into the forest. And so it's nighttime, and the camp counselors, they're in a separate tent, and they're asleep. And all of us boys are all in the same tent, and we're about to go to sleep. But Ryan, a fellow camper who is also 13 years old, and who I thought was one of my good friends, said, Nah, all these kids are faggots. Let's go sleep somewhere else. And so we agree with him because we think he's really cool. He's the cool guy. He's talked about how he like smokes. He's an atheist. We thought he was really, really cool. So he brings me and three other boys outside of the tent. We go for a little bit of a walk far away from the tent. And then in the middle of the forest, we lay down our sleeping bags. He says, okay, let's sleep here. And then he asks us to play a game of truth or dare. And so we're 13 year old boys. We think this is going to be normal. And so we're like, yeah, sure, let's play this. So we start playing truth or dare. And he is saying a bunch of random shit and it feels normal. And then he asks, hey, I dare you guys to suck my dick. And we should all suck each other's dicks. And so I feel this sense of fear and the sense of weirdness. And I don't want to be here, but he's the cool guy. And I want to impress him. And I want him to like me. I want to be cool like him. And so I feel like I have to. And so I go first. I have to take off my pants. I remember my penis was completely limp, flaccid, almost shrunken in. All the other boys are looking at it. And I'm feeling so incredibly judged. Like I'm the guy with the small penis, like, you know, I'm fucked up and all those feelings of self-esteem and self-hatred and especially body self-hatred are just resurfacing in like such an intense degree. And I remember him looking at me with his cold, dark, terrifying eyes. And I remember his warm breath pushing, eating at my penis and it's flaccid. It's dead down there. There's no blood. I'm bloodless. And he looks up at me and he tells me to get hard. And he says, think of that girl you have a crush on. Think of that blonde girl that you have a crush on. And I remember he still tries. And I can still remember the feeling of his rough mouth on my flaccid penis. And there's this pit in my stomach, this clenching. My heart was beating fast. And I was looking around at these other boys that were watching and doing fucking nothing. And then it was my turn. And I can still feel that gag reflex. The feeling of wanting to throw it all fucking up. That feeling of shame. And intense guilt that all the other three boys were there and watched me. And they saw that I couldn't get hard. And they were all probably judging me and thinking I was fucked up. And that intense feeling of not wanting to be there. Of just wanting to get the fuck away. Just wanting to escape but having no idea of how to escape. And just being crippled by this intense feeling of fear. And this feeling of wanting to please this fucked up rapist. And his voice calling me fucking faggot. Come on, do this, you faggot. 
do this, you faggot. You know you want it. You know you want it. And I want to vomit. I want to vomit all this fucking shit out of me. I want to get it out of me, but I stuck there. I'm terrified and no one's helping me. No one's doing anything. I just have to fucking do this and deal with this. And I'm feeling profound senses of shame and of guilt. After that happens, I try falling asleep as he's doing it to the other boys and I can't. Back in the present moment, my body is shaking uncontrollably. Summer has left the room and she comes back with a glass of water. She tells me, drink this. I start drinking it. My body's still shaking. I'm still lost. I'm still in the pine needles and I still feel him calling me a faggot. Come on, faggot. Do this, you faggot. The word faggot is bouncing and beating inside my body as it shakes and shakes and shakes. She grabs me and I feel her arms wrap around my body. Her wet, warm legs are wrapped around my thighs. Her arm is pressing into the bones of my chest and my stomach. Pretty soon it's past and I'm back in the moment. I can look around and I can see the bedroom. I see the satin curtains. I can feel the covers on me and I can feel her body pressing against mine. I feel like I'm back in the moment. She's whispering to me, it's okay. It's okay. I lay over and her head's on my chest. I can feel her slow breathing. Her chest moving in and out like a wave pushing against mine. I can feel my breathing as her hand rises with my stomach and sets back down. I feel her warm head against my chest, her hair soft against my neck. I'm breathing deeply and my heart's starting to come back to regular. And I don't need to say anything. And she doesn't need to say anything. There's just the sense that she knows what happened, but she was there for me. And I feel a profound sense of gratitude, maybe even love for the fact that this total stranger can be so present for me and really help me out of one of the most terrifying experiences I had to this point since the abuse. She was able to help me through all of the terror. I felt like no matter what happened in the future, no matter what's happened in the past, if I can be present if I can breathe through it, I'll be okay.
your minerals Rabbit beast at a foolish feet I'm all steal your breath a Twisted thief with a mangled glove It's just my nature, I ruin This is Risk. This is Rye behind me now, R-H-Y-E. And we just heard from Elliot Ridley. Like I said, Elliot was a Risk fan, listens to the show, decided to reach out and share his story. He's up in Canada. Elliot is working on a narrative film, and he's looking for writers, actors, artists, filmmakers that identify as sexual abuse survivors who might want to be a part of that work. It's a story of hope for those who might feel stuck in brokenness. You can reach Elliot at yourgenuinetruth at gmail.com. That's yourgenuinetruth at gmail.com. That's Elliot Ridley there. Now, every now and then, I get particularly excited about a particular sponsor of the show, and this is one of those occasions. OMGYES.com is a sex research website that conducted the first ever scientific studies of what feels good for women and why, and turned the findings into this super fun and incredibly real honest site full of videos it's like going to a friend's party where the theme is (laughs) here's exactly the way that i like my clit to be touched but it's not weird the women on the site in these videos they explain and even show on their bodies but the whole thing feels very very normal it feels very very honest and real they're sharing insights about clits as comfortably as they'd share recipes like here's one surprising finding from the research one in five women prefer their outer lips squeezed together around their clit like a sandwich a clit sandwich it's a thing so hooray for science So on omgyes.com, women, men, and couples get more understanding, more pleasure, and tools to make a great thing even better. And risk listeners get a discount when you go to omgyes.com slash risk. It's a one-time payment of $35 for permanent access to the first season of 62 videos plus interactive touchable simulations guys i really am excited about this it's such a wonderful site such a great learning experience it's just such a good thing it's omgs.com slash risk 
omgs.com slash risk. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from the remarkable stand-up comedian Mike Brown. Mike is based in New York, but you can see him all over the place. You can find him online at ohthatmikebrown.com. Here he is at the Bell House in Brooklyn with a story we call, You're Gonna Be Fine. This is different. Um, this feels risky. This is gonna be fun. Um, I do stand-up comedy, so like this is weird to have people just sitting down patiently waiting for me to talk. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's different. Um, oh boy. All right. So how do we? Okay. Let's just just. Thank you. Whoever said you can do it. Um, right, let's start like this. You're gonna be fine, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine, you're gonna be fine. My mom always told me I was gonna be fine. She told me this in 1995 when she told me I was gonna be moving with my dad in Harlem. You're gonna be fine. I was like, I am not gonna be fine with this at all. Um, I didn't really know my dad at that point. Like I knew he existed, I knew I would see him like maybe on Christmas or Thanksgiving or like my birthday, but like I didn't really know him and I was gonna be moving in with him and his new wife, you know. Um, also as I tell this story, just remember, I'm not like this guy in the story. This is 1995, I was like this big, you know what I'm saying? I was this big, I wasn't at Yo Mike Brown on your social medias, you know what I mean? I was just this big in Harlem and uh, comparatively, my dad was like, infinity big. He was the biggest person I've ever seen in my life. Um, and kind of built wide too, like a football player. You know what I mean? Not like he wasn't like on the Giants, but he would have been like on the practice squad. You know, like, like fat kind of muscles or whatever. And um, my stepmother was probably around like 10, 11 years older than me. You know, so uh, I kind of saw eye to eye with my stepmother a lot because, you know, we both were so much younger than my father, and, um, <laughs> you know, like I had homework, she had homework, you know what I mean? Um, it's a weird time, it was, it was, it was rough, man. But I moved in, and, and it was really weird. Um, I knew my dad didn't like me, you know? He never said he didn't like me. He would just say like little things that he didn't like that I did and I interpreted that as he didn't like me. And it was like really the most small insequential shit. Like uh, he said that I would sweep the house wrong. <laughs> that I didn't know how to sweep. That my mom taught me how to sweep and I swept the house wrong, you know. My dad, when he sweeps, he uses a broom. He just sweeps with a broom. When I would sweep, I would sweep with a broom and sing Whitney Houston, I'm Every Woman. That's what I would do. <laughs> would just, I'm every woman, just clean up the house. Didn't like that. Also, if I didn't mention this before, my dad is Jamaican, born in Jamaica. No healthcare, Jamaica. He was a different, <laughs> was a different breed than I am. You know, I'm, I'm Jamaican by blood, not by culture. So uh, that's what I was dealing with. And I felt like a prisoner there. Like I, I, I really, really hated it, you know? And 
I was moving from Queens to Harlem in 1995. Harlem was a different Harlem than what you guys might know it as today. It wasn't no high, it wasn't so high, whatever real estate people are calling it these days. <laughs> it was a different time. We could afford to live there. You know what I mean? It was a different Harlem. You know, like now they're trying to get like gluten off the streets. We were trying to get crack off the streets back when I was a kid. <laughs> it, it was a totally, totally different time. Um, so what I would do, because I was so scared, is I started to like get into hip hop at that time. Like I would listen to Tribe. One song that really got me through was uh, this group Mob Deep. They had this song called Shook Ones. You know what I mean? I don't know if y'all heard of it, um, R.I.P. Prodigy. But uh, the chorus goes, uh, you scared to death, you scared to look, you shook. Cause ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. You never around when the beef cooks. I was like, yup. <laughs> but when I heard that, I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna hold my head down anymore when I walk through Harlem. I'm gonna start looking people in their eyes. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna look like I'm scared to live here. I'm gonna look hard when I'm here. I'm gonna look hard. I don't want no problems with nobody. I want no problems with me. I look hard. I look like I'm from here. I look like I'm from here. Started my new high school. They were like, no, he's not from here. He's not. <laughs> from here at all. No, it was, it was hard to make friends. They would all tease me, you know, because I started junior high school in the eighth grade. And back then at the school I went to, it was seventh grade, eighth grade, the 9, 10, 11, 12. And it was a public school that was ran like a private school, so we had to wear like uniforms. So in the first year, everybody, you know, you wear your uniforms, you get your like kind of like standardized, issued uniforms, really tight legs and all that stuff. Everybody did that in the seventh grade. They came back in the eighth grade and they were like, nah, we getting baggy jeans. You know what I mean? Like, that's what they would do. Me, I started in the eighth grade, so I had like the standard issue, very straight leg. And I'm like, hey guys, scared to death, scared to look, what's up? You know what I mean? They knew. So they, they would tease me. And also, I'm not gonna get into it, but like I had a father, it was a really big deal back in my school at that time. So uh, they did not really like me until we would go and play like video games after school. That was the thing that we would do. Right across the street was a pizza shop. We'd play Samurai Showdown. You know, as a kid, I didn't really have like a lot of friends, so I would just listen to music and play video games. So when we played Samurai Showdown, they're like, yo, Mike is nice, he's good, and I'm just whooping ass. Samurai Showdown, pew, 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 doing it. Pew, pew, pew. Everybody's like, yo, he cool, he's cool. But once the game was over, they're like, nah, he not from here. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's back to being by myself, and I hated it, I hated it. The only times I liked being in Harlem was when I was listening to music or when I was playing video games. But the problem was, is my dad was always like, hey, I want you to come straight home after school. You gotta come straight home. I would never come straight home. I'd always go to the arcade and play video games, right? And this was back in the day. I would get in trouble all the time. Uh, for the white people in the audience, I would get on punishment. For the black people, my father's Jamaican. I don't want to say anymore. Um, it was a very different time, so... Uh, I remember I just hated it and I kept calling my mom. I'm like, mom, I don't want to be here anymore. Can I just come back to Queens? And she's like, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine. I'm like, I want to go back home. She's like, no, you're gonna be fine. And it was a weird thing to me because my mom had got remarried to this new dude. And I knew that I was no longer the man of the house as she got remarried and I wasn't there anymore. And now like I'm in this new space with my, my dad and uh, his younger wife. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I just hate this shit. I just hate this shit. But I just like, you know, I would grin and bear it and, and, and just keep going to school and, and dealing with everything. Uh, one day, I came back home after the arcade and uh, my stepmother was like, he's not listening to you. What you need to do is put him on punishment for real. We're gonna take away his video games. We're gonna take away his music. Three months, nothing. 
And I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing to happen to me ever. And I felt so alone, I got really depressed, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna kill myself. This is it, this is it. And it's not like, when I say I'm gonna kill myself, it wasn't a thing of like, yeah, I'm gonna kill myself, thou show them. It was more of a thing like, I'm over it, you know what I mean? Let's just get the shit over it, you know what I mean? Like, I'm done. Like a video game, you just wanna reset it, like, okay, I lost, whatever, I don't wanna play anymore. That's how I felt, right? So, uh, I remember I went to my room, my stepmother went to the living room to watch some TV. My dad went to the kitchen and like started cooking or whatever. And I was in my room and I was like, how am I gonna kill myself? How am I gonna kill myself? How do people kill themselves? And I was like, I can just slit my wrists. And then I was like, nah, I can't do that. I can't do that. Cause I, like, I wanted to kill myself, but I didn't want to hurt myself. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't want to put a knife to my body. Like, you fucking crazy? You know what I mean? That's white people shit. You know what I mean? Like I'm not. <laughs> You know, what are you gonna do? What other options do you got? And I was like, you know what? I hear that if you have plastic bags by babies, they can suffocate and they'll die. So what I'll do is get me some plastic bags, tie them over my head, and I'll just suffocate and die. That'll be more pleasant, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I go into the kitchen, like I go under the sink. My dad is there. He's like, you doing your homework? I'm like, yeah, you know, get my plastic bags. Go back into my room, I lay on the bed, and I tie these bags over my head. I'm just kind of laying there on the bed with these bags over my head, thinking, you know, I'm like, what, what got me to this place? Why am I here? Do I really want to do this? Like, is there something else I can be doing? Is tomorrow going to be better? I don't know if I want to do this. Am I scared to death? Am I shook? Am I a halfway crook? You know what I mean? Like, I'm asking myself these questions. And I said, you know what? I can't do it, I can't do this. So I, I, I take the plastic bags off my head and I sneak into the office and get the phone. And at this time, I don't know if there were like hotlines for suicidal people in 1995, I don't know. I didn't have the TV use at that time, so I didn't see the commercials. What I did was I called 911. And I'm on the phone with them, hey, hello, uh, Hey, 911, how you doing? Um, yeah, hey, my name is Mike, and um, I, I kind of want to kill myself, but I'm not really sure. I just, can I just talk to you for a little bit, you know? And at this point, I'm on the phone with this woman, and I know the gravity of what I'm saying, you know what I mean? Because that is a lot. Like, if you work in a 911 operator, you just, you might have just got on break. You're not ready to deal with this type of shit, you know what I mean? That's how I feel. So she says, Mike, Mike, that's your name, Mike? Okay, just, just, just hold on. We're gonna transfer you to a different line and we're gonna talk, okay? I'm like, okay, cool, cool, you know? If you don't wanna talk, it's cool, you know? I'll call another time. And she's like, no, we're gonna talk. Just chill the fuck out, you know? <laughs> so, I forget what she said to me, but she said enough to make me say, you know what? I'll stay around, I'll stick around. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll stick around, I, I won't do it. I'll, I'll think about it. You know, and um, I hang up the phone, and I'm like, well, I'm not gonna kill myself. Might as well do my homework. So I go and I do my homework. <laughs> you gotta understand my thinking. It's kind of like, you know, when you think that you have a snow day and then it's not a snow day, like, <laughs> might as well do your homework, you know? They're gonna ask for your homework, do your homework, you know? So 
go back to my homework, you know. And like I said, I had nothing else to do. You know, I was nerdy. I was killing that homework. You feel me? Shout out. Shout out to my school and shit, you know. So I was killing my homework and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clap it up for education. <laughs> yeah, y'all. Science is cool. Um, no. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my homework or whatever. And then the doorbell rings. And my stepmother is like, you know, you, got, you have company coming over? And my dad's like, no. And so he goes and gets the door because, you know, he, you know, he's Jamaican. He doesn't want, you know, anything to be happening at, at his door because he doesn't know what's going on. So he gets the door. And I just hear these, like, deep male voices. And my dad's like, Mike, come here for a minute. I go to meet him at the door. Through the corner of my eye, there's, like, flashing blue and red lights coming through the window. And there's a police officer there. And he's like, um... Yeah, we're responding to a 911 call. Someone said that they were going to kill themselves. And my dad looks at me. And I'm like, I don't know who was playing on your phone. I really I have no clue. But then he's like, you're, you're Mike, right? Yeah, you're going to have to come with us. And another thing about Harlem, or I guess about black people in general, we don't like people in our business. That's something that we don't like. Like, me telling this story is a lot. You know what I mean? Um, at that moment, the business that I had, everybody on the block was in the business. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, you're living on a one-way street. You have an ambulance. I don't know if that's how you say it. I'm from New York. You've got an ambulance <laughs> in the street. You got two cop cars, the sirens going off and all that, and everybody. Neighbors, I didn't even know I had neighbors. That's how much we kept our business away from each other. You know what I mean? And you just see these people hanging out the window looking to see what's going on. You know, my stepmother comes out. She's upset, you know, presumably because everybody's in the business. My dad is a little upset for the same reason everybody's in the business. And uh, we sit in the ambulance, and it's a quiet, quiet, quiet ride. We get to the hospital, and the doctor pulls me aside and says, hey, you know, hey, Mike, come here, or whatever. So I go with him in the room, and he's like, Mike, so, uh, yeah, you know, the, the officers explain things to me. I just want to ask you a few questions. Um, are you hurt? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, did your, uh, did, did, your, did your father touch you anywhere? Did your father make you touch him anywhere? Is, is your stepmother making you... Touch her, she, you know, do you have to, is anything going on? Is he burning you with fires? Is there anything going on? And I'm there like, damn, no. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, yo, shit is rough out here. You know what I mean? As he's asking me these questions, I realize how insignificant my problems were in relation to other people. Like, here I am, moving to Harlem for the first time with this stranger. That's how I felt. I'm living in Harlem with this stranger. I'm living in this new strange place with this strange man. I don't want to be here. I'm not ready for change. But the fact is, is like, yo, that's my dad. He might not like me, but like, that's my dad. He cares. I'm, I'm living there. He's paying the bills. I don't have to get a job yet. It was 1995. You know, it was different. And I was like, wow, I can't just like leave Earth. <laughs> you know, I can't stop living because of this thing. And so I finish up with the doctor. 
and I walk out to the lobby, and my dad is there, I can tell by his face that he spoke with the cops. The cops probably filled him in on the whole 911 call and everything that happened. I don't know if his face read shame or fear, but I know it wasn't disappointment. And I saw him for the first time start to cry. Let me take that back. He wasn't crying, you know, he was a gangster. What he did was, they were, the, the tear ducts were getting ready. You know what I mean? They were, you know, they were on standby. You know what I mean? They wasn't crying, but they were, they were ready to go. Any moments notice? And before I could say anything, he just, you know, put his arms around me and just hugged me just real tight. Tighter than he's like ever hugged me before. And he was like, Mike, are you gonna be okay? And I was like, for the first time since moving there, I was able to tell him like to his face, like, Dad, I, I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine. That's it, thank you. Trying, trying to fix a broken heart She knows there's no use in crying So she prays for a brand new start Somewhere there's children crying Cause the road to the river is way too far They think there's no use in fighting Cause their hopes and dreams have been torn apart So I pray, oh Lord, I pray for a rainy day So I pray, oh Lord, I pray for a rainy day So I pray, oh Lord, I pray for a rainy day So I pray, oh Lord, I pray for a rainy day That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Jacob Banks behind me now, and we just heard from Mike Brown. Again, you can find him at ohthatmikebrown.com. Remember, Book of the Month is a rapidly growing service with a simple goal to make sure you love what you read. You browse the five best books of the month and discover titles you wouldn't have found on your own. With exclusive pricing starting at just $10, you can get your favorites shipped to your doorstep for less. Book of the Month, Bound to Delight, and get your first book for $10 at bookofthemonth.com slash risk. I'm going to read now where Risk is appearing live next on August 30th. We are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's going to be a hell of a show, a hell of a cast. Guitla Raphael, Michelle Carlo, Blair Sochi, Walter Zimmerman, and Victor Varnado. That's going to be a great show. Come on out, Brooklyn, at the Bell House on August 30th. On September 9th, we're back in Salt Lake City, Utah at the Urban Lounge. The theme that night is unexpected, 
And the window is really running out for pitching us that night, especially if you have funny stories. Pitch us for September 9th in Salt Lake City at the Urban Lounge. The theme is unexpected. And you know where to pitch us at the submissions page at wristshow.com. On September 16th, we are back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Oh my gosh, that's going to be a hell of a show, too. Then listen to these November dates. And remember, you can find us at wristshow.com slash submissions if you want to pitch us. On November 3rd, Baltimore, Maryland, the theme is Obsession. November 9th, in Chicago, the theme is Revealing. November 10th, Madison, Wisconsin, the theme is Huge. November 11th, Detroit, Michigan, the theme is Surprise. Still taking pitches for all those shows at the submissions page at wrist-show.com. Now, on December 2nd, we'll be in Phoenix, Arizona for the very first time ever. Phoenix, on December 2nd, the theme is jaw-dropping. Now, if you want to learn more about storytelling, there are some fantastic tips right there on the submissions page at risk-show.com, but you can also visit thestorystudio.org where we do one-on-one training over Skype or training in person. We, we do workshops where you can be with a whole bunch of other people in the room working on your stories. We do staff trainings for corporate workshops. That's all at thestorystudio.org. And don't forget, nothing means more to us than you spreading the word about Risk. Let your friends know that on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at Risk Show. That, you know, people should leave comments on our site or our Facebook discussion group or especially in the iTunes, where you can comment on, you know, give five-star ratings and leave comments on iTunes. Those get a lot of eyeballs and those bring people's attention to podcasts. So spread the word any way you can. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There's an Easter egg. Easter egg. Where is the Easter egg? Oh, this. 
This is the Easter egg. This, this is the Easter egg. This, this is the Easter egg. Easter egg.